Well, hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we go through the Bible book by book in a way that's deep, but also easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Solid Life Whole Bible Reading Plan. We also have physical reading plans available in the lobby every Sunday. Yes, and as usual, if you have any questions that you would like answered or that come up during your reading, please send them in to us. We love seeing these questions and we love taking time on the last Friday of every month to answer them. Uh, and so please make sure you continue to do that. Thank you for those of you who have already sent in questions uh, or anticipating and looking forward to answering those for you. Yeah. And you don't also, you don't only have to send in questions. You can actually send in uh, rebukes or, if corrections. You want, or corrections. And speaking of such things, uh, I can't remember if it was last week or the week before, uh, but we were comparing the idea of um, how the last king of Judah becomes kind of a vassal king uh, or basically a king without much power. And I said, it's kind of like the Queen of England. And then one of our listeners who hails from uh, the United Kingdom, I believe Wales in particular, but I don't want to. I don't want to mess that up either. But anyway, uh, he actually uh, emailed in and then corrected us that the queen actually does have a considerable amount of power. She just chooses not uh, to exercise it at all times. But she, uh, she can. I think she can veto any law and dissolve parliament. So there you go. I don't know. I so I'm, I'm an American, so I don't know a lot. Well, so am so I. Thank you so, for the correction. Yeah. Um, and we will take that humbly. And realize we don't always know what we're talking about. So exactly, uh, it happens to the best of us. Particularly when it comes to the uh, the politics of another nation. Yes. So there, there you go. Uh, but with that being said, we're going to go ahead and jump into this week's Bible talk. Uh, so really, we want to take a good chunk of time, especially with our First Kings and our Chronicles highlight, to um, not necessarily go over specific scripture, although we will in a little bit, um, but to really talk about the legacy of King Solomon. And I think Solomon is really the last of the, uh, I don't want to say great kings, because there's really good kings that come after him. But But you can say that. Yeah, in terms of um, amount of time devoted to learning about them. Like, there's a lot of time devoted to Saul, not that we would call him a great king, but there's, I mean, a ton of time devoted to David, and then Solomon also. Uh, We have chapters of upon chapters of of the Bible who where we learn more about this man. And it almost feels like the first three kings are like the most important because there is so much time devoted to them. And then it's almost like rapid fire after Solomon. So um, we're going to devote some time to Solomon as well. Exactly. Shout out to Hezekiah and Josiah. You guys are good Kings, but uh, we'll get to you. We'll get to you later when the time comes. Not that you're listening to this podcast because you've been dead for thousands of years, years. just, just a little bit Uh, anyway. So, it's really interesting. The first thing I want to say about King Solomon is it's, it's very interesting that a son of David and Bathsheba is the one who's chosen to be the king. Because you'll remember uh, Bathsheba is the woman who uh, David commits adultery with and has her husband killed. And their first child together uh, actually dies as part of punishment for God for everything. And then their second son, uh, Solomon, who is their their firstborn living son, I guess I should say. Yeah. Um, that's a weird way to say it. But anyway, he, he is the one who is chosen by God to become king over Israel. And by extension, he is actually uh, a direct ancestor of Jesus. So we, we track Jesus's Jesus uh, Jesus's genealogy. Say that five times fast. Uh, in the Gospels, it winds us all the way back to King David. It goes before that as well. Um, and it's, it's interesting too because even in the genealogy, I forgot which one it is, but it doesn't refer to Bathsheba by name. It refers to her as the uh, the wife of Uriah, which is kind of just a way of saying, um, like, uh, not not that they necessarily disapprove, but I think there's just so much shame associated with that story mm-hmm. that it was even hard for the chronicles to put chroniclers to understand. Like, well, why was why was he chosen? So, 
But that is what ends up happening. Um, and in the first few chapters of, uh, of Kings, we see Solomon's reign begins almost in the opposite way of David. And so with David, we see his early reign marked um, mercy is kind of an interesting word because he actually just kills some people, but it's, it's really mercy yeah. for the, um, the opposite side, if that makes sense. And so if you remember, David becomes King. Some people say that, um, uh, or one person comes forward and says like, David, I'm the one who killed King Saul and David's not having anything, any of it has that man executed. Uh, the son of Saul, Ishboseth, is assassinated. The assassination, the, assass- the assassins come before David, and they say that we're the ones who did it, and he has them executed. And then he shows mercy to Mephibosheth, who uh, really had a claim to the kingship if he wanted it. Mm-hmm. He could have said, "I am a son of Jonathan." Jonathan was the next in line for the king. All these different things, um, but David chooses to show mercy to him as well, and so that's really what marks um, David's early reign. And even Abner, the uh, uh, the general of Saul's armies, David doesn't want killed. Uh, Joab has him killed or kills him himself, which uh, we'll get to that here in a little bit as well, because Joab gets his comeuppance, as it were. It's a problem with Chronicles, man. There's so many spoilers. I know. What are you going to do? Um, but moving forward, the beginning of Solomon's reign is really marked by um, a political purge, which would have been really common back in the day. If you became king, you wanted to make sure that all of your enemies were wiped out. What's interesting is that it comes in the context of uh the bible and and opinion is kind of split as to whether or not this is a good thing or a bad thing uh i've read some commentaries where it's like this is the wise thing that solomon has to do and other commentaries where um maybe it wasn't necessarily necessary i kind of tend to fall on the line of um he didn't necessarily have to do all of this but you know yeah it's an interesting i mean it's an interesting tension to kind of think through in our context only because we're looking back so far um because like why did david tell him to do then here's the next steps you need to consider. Like right. on, on, it's almost on David's deathbed. He's like, Hey, here's, here's what you need to know is you're going to be King. Um, yeah. And to be clear, Solomon just doesn't decide to do this. David's telling him. Yeah. These are your next steps. You need to take out these As guys. King, here's what you need to do. And even like, even Joab, who was like David's right hand, who was David's one of David's strongest supporters and, and his um, one of, one of his guys, like he, you need to, you need to take care of Joab. Yeah. And why? And so it's like, why would David tell him, tell Solomon, and David had insight. David knew. And so, I mean, there, there was some tension that we've already talked through at different times. I mean, I even spent some time talking about Joab. Um, but why? Why would Solomon start this way? And um, he, wasn't, he, wasn't wise, he wasn't a wise king at this point. This is at the very beginning. This is before, he, he was, before God showed up to him is when right. David's telling him, here's what you need to do. Or he was wise, but not um, to the extent. Yeah, yeah. He, become, like, yeah. It wasn't this moment where he, where God shows up and says, "Hey, what can I give you?" And Solomon asks for wisdom. That this was all precursor to that, mm-hmm. um, that uh, that moment with God. Uh, but it's just interesting. It's just a, I, I don't know. It's one of those questions of like, yeah, reading. I'm gonna have an answer. Reading through it with a modern lens, it, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just, it, it, it's, it's just different, I guess, as mm-hmm. you're reading through it. But yeah. Uh, so to kind of go through what happens, Solomon's brother Adonijah uh, sets himself up. Uh, with a claim to the throne, he ends up uh, basically not going through with all of that, although there's still conspirators and, and the inferences that he's planning on eventually launching a coup to make this happen. Um, he comes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, and asks for permission to marry, uh, I forgot who it was, but to marry someone who is well-connected to the, the history of David, basically, is kind of a power move. Um, Solomon hears about this. He has Adonijah killed. And then after that, Abiathar, the high priest who was also allied with Adonijah, is exiled. So he is the only one in the purge not who is not killed. 
Uh, after that, Joab is killed actually at the uh, in the temple, which is an interesting yes. or tabernacle at the time. Because jo- Joab went to hide there, right? And he said, "This is where I'm going to die." And Solomon's like, "Yeah, make that come to fruition. Let that come to pass. Go mm-hmm. kill him." So there you go. And then uh, it was Ben and I who killed him, correct? Yep. So pit and lion, snowy day. That guy come, you know, really comes full circle, and he uh, ends up becoming the uh, the commander of the army yep. after all of this goes down, uh, and then. I don't know how to pronounce this one. Shimei, I'm going to say. Yeah, that, works. that uh, sounds great. That sounds like, that sounds like what it is. Uh, he is also killed not during the initial purge, but he's basically uh, said, you're in this one plot of land. You can never leave it for any reason. One day he does leave it. Um, and he leaves it for good reason. He leaves it because some of his, I think it was some of his flock had ventured off. And so he wanted to go rescue them. Yeah. Either and, servants or flock, one of the two. Yeah, but, one of the two. And so then he goes to rescue them, brings them back, goes back to this. In essence, it's like, here's your line. Don't cross this line. He crossed line, goes back to his space, wasn't trying to break the law. And then all of a sudden, Solomon heard of it. <laughs> See ya, you're dead. Yep. Or so. Benaiah. Yeah, Benaiah takes him out too. So it's just one of those interesting things. Um, again, I don't, I don't want to necessarily say whether or not um, this is a thing that is wise and good or this thing that's like kind of evil and bad. It's just one of those things where it, it is interesting to me to point out yeah. um, that when we look at the beginning of David's reign and the beginning of Solomon's reign, they are opposite in this in this way. Yeah. And I think we also have to remember, and I, we, I'm pretty sure we've discussed it at different times. We have to be very careful to read our understanding of justice and our understanding of right and wrong into scripture. Uh, and I think we get into trouble if we're not, if, if we don't, if we're not careful with that, because then it's, well, why would God do this? Why would God be so vindictive or so cruel and allow Saul? Like we, we've got to understand we're just looking from the outside in, just like Chronicles is trying to overview things. Um, and, and so we got to be careful not to, or this is right or wrong. Well, we don't know, but we, what we know is this is what happened. And Solomon is a very wise leader and he becomes more wise. And, and we just have to understand, like, we just have to come in with that perspective of, Okay, God, show me your grace, your mercy, your truth in the midst of all of this. So. Right. Um, but I think that's a great transition point to talk about the, the – so what are the highs and the lows of King Solomon? And so these aren't as numerous as, uh, as David, not as much time is devoted to him. But we do have um, a couple of really great examples of both. As far as highs go, uh, one of the most famous, I would say, stories about Solomon is that God visits him in a dream and he asks him, you know, what do you want? And he could have asked for wealth. He could have asked for riches. Riches and wealth are the same thing. I don't know why I said that. But power, you know, all these different things. And Solomon actually asks for wisdom. He asks for the wisdom to lead God's people well. And he's so impressed with this that God actually says, I will give you wisdom, but I will also give you incredible wealth and incredible power um, and all these different things. And we'll see in the reign of Solomon that all comes to pass um there's probably one of the more famous stories about solomon also is when uh the two women come and they're arguing over uh one one of the women's sons has died uh babies has died and the other one is alive and they're arguing about which one is the mother of the dead child and which one's the mother of the alive child and that's when solomon says you know cut the baby in half you each get half which doesn't work that way um and then the one woman's like fine and the other woman is saying no 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 just give it to the other and solomon realizes that's the it's the real mom. That's the real mom. The and real it mom. says that uh, all of Israel heard about this judgment and they were amazed. Or in other words, this story is circulating. This isn't something that is just in the the books of the Chronicles, but really it's something that is getting out to the entire land. And they're all of Israel saying like, wow, the king is incredibly wise. Um, another one of the highs, and we talked about it last week, is when the temple is built. Yeah. So the temple really is uh, just an incredible 
an incredible monument of, of, of worship to God. And I, I want to be careful how we say it because n- sometimes we can get a bad connotation with uh, um, with buildings and things like that, especially with the church, especially just in American uh, Christian culture. We tend to keep our churches simple, more simple. Uh, yeah. We don't have as big, ornate um, buildings. And that's not true kind across of. the board. Yeah, but for the, for the most part. I can think of a few churches that have this. Tr- true. But like Temple-esque his, experience. Yeah. Historically, uh, the way the American churches operate is usually kind of like smaller colonial churches, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, but this really, this really was just an act of worship to God, building this incredibly ornate temple. And it's, it's definitely the, the lasting legacy of Solomon. Uh, it lasts for a, a very, very long time. Uh, unfortunately, by the time of Jesus, it's Herod's temple. And then today the temple no longer exists because both of them were destroyed. But. And it was also an act of obedience too. Right. Like, this is something that David commissioned him, that God told David, Solomon's going to be the one to build the temple. And so when David was handing off the baton, it was also something Solomon was commissioned to do. And so it all, it isn't, it's an act of worship because I think obedience is worship, but I think it's also a greater, like this was one of his chief tasks mm-hmm. beyond the purging of the, the supporters of the political side of things or the early on, but it was also a very much a very big conversation because even Solomon was promised peace. Yeah. God said, I'm going to give him peace on all sides. And he's going to be the one to build the temple. So there's that act of obedience in there too. Yeah. And if the temple is one of the great, one of his greatest legacies to the people of Israel, I would say uh, right up there, probably right ahead of it or right below it, but definitely his greatest legacy to us today as Christians is the fact that he was um, a contributor or wrote the entirety of uh, four of the five wisdom books wisdom books, poetic yeah. books in the Bible. So mm-hmm. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. He didn't have anything to do with Job, uh, but Psalms, he writes a couple and yeah, they're in there. So not uh, obviously that's mostly known as David and that's that's correct because David wrote most of them, but Solomon's in there for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but Proverbs, he writes the majority of those. I think it's just three or four chapters. We'll get at to that here end. in a second. Yeah, at the end that are written by different people. And then Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs are both um, either written by Solomon in the case of Ecclesiastes are possibly written for Solomon in the case of the song of songs or written mm-hmm. by him himself. But so those are some interesting things uh, to keep in mind. We're actually going to go over the book of Proverbs here in a little bit or introduce it. Cause we started it this week as well, but yeah, it is just a, it's an incredible lasting legacy yeah. for his King. These are high highs. Well, and I think in, I mean, even, even to jump ahead of for a moment in, in second Chronicles, we do see um, some of the conversation of Solomon's, the extent of Solomon's wealth, the, the, the picture of Solomon's, power and 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 just sheer uh, influence in the world as, as he knew it back then um, and even in you know chapter nine we see um, this book end kind of filter and conversation uh, because second chronicles one starts off with uh, a conversation of Solomon and his reign and his wealth and his influence and then in, in chapter nine and at the end verse 20 I think it's eight there we see the same partial repetition of what was said in, in Second Chronicles chapter one. So it's almost this bookend as we will read this week uh, in chapter tw- nine, verses twenty-two. You just see this picture. I mean, I'm just going to read it real quick for us. It says this: uh, So King Solomon became richer and wiser than any other king on earth. Kings from every nation came to consult him and to hear the wisdom God had given him. Year after year, everyone who visited brought him gifts of silver and gold, clothing, weapons, spices, horses, and mules. Uh, 20, verse 25 says, Solomon had 4,000 stalls for his horses and chariots. He had 12,000 horses. He stationed some of them in the chariot cities, some near him in Jerusalem. He ruled over all the kings from the Euphrates River to the north, uh, in the north to the land of the Philistines and the border of Egypt in the south. The king made 
silver as plentiful as Jerusalem, in Jerusalem as stone, and valuable cedar timber was common as the sycamore fig trees that grow on the foothills of Judah. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and many other countries. The vast majority uh, of Solomon and his wealth was incredible. Yeah. Um, and I love the picture just like it shows him. He's supreme over every other king on earth at this time. There's no one greater than him. There's no one with more influence. Even the story of the Queen of Sheba, who is from modern-day Yemen, who their main industry is imports and exports. They're about trades. Uh, I think Evan called them traders earlier. They're traders. A <laughs> bunch of traders. She, people of Sheba are a bunch of traders. But uh, it's just she came because she heard about his wisdom. He, she heard about his influence and stature, and she wanted to be a part of it. She wanted to see what it was all about. And it says this, she came to ask him hard questions. Uh, and so the, talk about the highs of Solomon's life. I mean, he was, you want to know somebody, you want to sit down in the presence of someone. He was the guy. People right. came from all over the place with gifts. Um, the simple fact that he could make silver as common as stone in Jerusalem is incredible uh, and just shows to the magnitude of his, of, of his high at, this, at his peak. Incredible, incredible. Yeah. As, and as long as we're on the subject of his highs, I think it's good to talk about uh, just the book of Proverbs because we are starting that this week. And so yeah. just to kind of... Uh, give it an introduction. Uh, most of the Proverbs, like we said, are attributed to King Solomon. Uh, however, so it's chapters 25, uh, no, sorry, not 25 through 29. Uh, it's Proverbs 30 through 31 are written by different people. So other than that, they're all attributed to Solomon. The interesting thing with Proverbs is that while they're all written by Solomon, we actually know that at least the entirety of the book wasn't compiled until uh, generations later under the reign of King Hezekiah. And the reason we know that is because uh, Proverbs 25 through 29 state that they're the Proverbs of Solomon as copied by the men of Hezekiah. Or in other words, King Hezekiah ordered these to be copied down and also put into the book of Proverbs. So just an interesting tidbit as far as um, it's not that it all came out at once, but rather this book was compiled over time. Uh, and really, Proverbs is probably one of, other than the Gospels, I would say it's one of the easiest books in the Bible to read, just because, I mean, it's incredibly dense, but when you're reading through the Proverbs, it's not necessarily hard to understand. You just read through them. And next week, we'll actually, I uh, will put down a couple examples as far as like ones that just kind of stand out. But I also appreciate the complexity of Proverbs. Oh, yeah. There's some... the statements like it's it's attainable and and it's it's a goal to set to read some proverbs. I think I remember as a kid one of the things that my pastor would say, there's 31 proverbs, you should one one proverb a day every month. <laughs> and and it is something easy to attain, but then it's also complex. There's so much depth to the, some of the simple statements. Oh yeah, cuz when you say 31 proverbs you mean like chapters, chapters of, of proverbs, yes. but each chapter has, I mean, 31 of their own. Yeah, dozens. Not really, but there's, yeah, there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of statements. So, and each one of them, uh, like some of them aren't necessarily that convicting for, for me. And it's going to be different for everyone, right? And then some of them are just like, oh, I mean, that's that's good to think about. And so, like I said, next week we'll have a couple of the ones that uh, uh, I think I'm doing the Proverbs highlight next week. So, I wrote down a couple that stood out to me and we'll Evan's more righteous than that. me. That's not true I'm at all. I'm pretty sure the Proverbs uh, convict me all the time. So anyways, if you uh, if you want to break down the book, you could do so into five sections. So chapters one through nine, you could call the Discourses of Solomon. This is a little bit more uh, poetic than the rest of the book. Um, still a lot of wisdom packed in there. And then after that, there's the individual Proverbs of Solomon. And these are kind of individual sayings that are kind of what are famous, what you would think of as today as a proverb. Yeah. That's what Find a lot of them a for- are. Fortune cookie. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the sayings of the wise are is Proverbs chapter 22 through 24. 
the Proverbs of Solomon copied by the men of Hezekiah. That's what we talked about earlier. There's 25 through 29. And then finally, what we you could just call the appendices. Uh, and these are the sayings of Agur, Lemuel. I'm going to hope that was right. And then the poem of the ideal wife, which is kind of- it's 100% if you, right. If, thank you. Uh, but if you ever heard that, uh, like a Proverbs 31 woman or something like that, that's where that poem comes from. Um, it's just kind of a list of like, it's, it's just really good. So I would encourage everyone, everyone to read through that. Um, and that is the book of Proverbs. Um, so now let's talk for a little bit. We're running out of uh, running out of time, I guess, but just about the lows of Solomon really quick, because as much as there were high highs, there were a lot of low lows. Uh, Solomon engages in a lot of political marriages at the start, um, which at the time, again, was a very common. In fact, that was extremely common yeah, until common. It, it was very recently that those stopped being such uh, quite a thing. Um, but Solomon engages in those. And the big issue is most of these women uh, are not worshiping God. They're worshiping other gods. And so I, th- I believe the first woman he marries is the uh, the princess of Egypt, a pharaoh's daughter. Yes. I think that's who it was. Yeah. So, and he builds a house for himself and then he builds a house for her and then he builds a place where she can worship uh, the gods of Egypt and Israel, which- uh, Big mistake. Yeah. The God, not, not too keen on idols being worshiped, uh, particularly among his people. Um, and I think the, it's the first commandment. Yeah, so you know it's kind of it's kind of important. So, uh, but it's just, wise guy. it's just one of those things where uh, it just kind of keeps going on. Um, not all of these were political marriages. Solomon, I believe, it's the numbers are uh, three hundred wives and six hundred concubines, or some, something like uh, that. So it's it's some astro- yeah some astronomical number. Um, and so you don't get that way just through political marriages. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, there's some heart issues there. Yeah, there's some lust and there's some uh, just pursuit of pleasure uh, at the max at the max. Uh, which we'll get to when we get to Ecclesiastes, which is one of my favorite books of the Bible, but yes, I, won't, I won't spoil that here. Um, and so Solomon ultimately, uh, his reign kind of ends in apostasy, or I shouldn't say ends, but his reign is marked um, by not serving God, by drifting away. And in fact, uh, God is so angry that he splits the kingdom. He tells Solomon, because of, uh, because of the love I have for David, it's not going to happen during your lifetime, but when your son comes around, who's going to be a moron, uh, the kingdoms no longer be together. And so sure enough, Rehoboam, uh, Solomon's son becomes king. And then pretty quickly after he becomes king, there's a rebellion. And for the rest of Israel's history, or I shouldn't say the rest of Israel's history, but for the rest of history until Babylon, basically, uh, Israel is split into the Northern kingdom of Israel, which is the North 11 tribes. And then uh, the kingdom of Judah in the South. So awesome. Yeah. So again, Great legacy, really high highs, legacy of the temple, legacy of uh, books of the Bible, but also really low Pretty lows low, where low. The kingdom uh, splits, the kingdom of God splits. Yep. So, uh, and that is the, that is the life of Solomon in a nutshell. And if you're thinking to yourself, man, that's a huge bummer. Bear in mind that um, at the end of Ecclesiastes, which is the book that was kind of written in his old age, looking back on his life, um, he does reflect and say that it is better to, uh, to remember God in the days of your youth, basically, mm-hmm. you're saying that that is what's most important. So I, yeah. I do like to think that he comes around at the end of his life and realizes his mistakes, but um, that's not to say that he still didn't mess up royally uh, in a lot of ways. And and yeah, so Solomon, just like Saul, just like David, complicated character, has highs and lows. Um, and in this case, it's kind of interesting because I would say with with Saul, he had more lows than highs. With David, he had more highs than lows. And with Solomon, it's almost like they're kind of equal. Uh, yeah. Like really high highs, really low lows. I don't. I, if you're putting them on a scale, I'm not sure the way that you want to mark them. But that is uh, that's our retrospective on King Solomon. So yeah. hope you enjoyed that. Uh, we're gonna take 
a few minutes just to go over some of the other books that we're reading this week. We're going to try and fly through them fast because uh, obviously we took so much time with Solomon. But uh, Aaron, if you want to take it away with our Hebrews highlight. Yes, this week. yes. Uh, it's fun because I think we can talk so much about this guy named Solomon and we want to do him justice, but we also want to understand that there's more that we're reading. And so uh, I just want to hit a chapter that I think is pretty well known at a Hebrews that we'll be reading this week at Hebrews 11. Uh, it's oftentimes referred to as the great faith chapter where it breaks down Faith uh, is the is the essence of things unseen. It um, talks about the idea of faith and how faith is a practical, powerful, important piece because it even says later on in chapter 11, without faith it's impossible to please God. Um, and as I was kind of overviewing this chapter, I'm not going to read any specific verse. I just want to kind of give you a lens to look through as you read this chapter. Uh, there was a statement in a commentary that just says this, Faith consists of persistent hope in the promises of God, and it is such faith that obtains salvation on the last day. Uh, and I want to encourage you as you read through the chapter this week of chapter 11 in Hebrews, don't get caught up in the faithfulness of man. All of these individuals are called out for their faithfulness, for their acts of faith, for being steadfast. But it's in their persistent hope and the promises of God that we need to remember they're being celebrated through. So don't get caught up in, in the faithfulness of man, but understand and look to see where their faith it was anchored to the promises of God and his faithfulness and God's faithfulness, because that's why they're being celebrated in this chapter. And I remember it's easy to read into it. Man, I want to be like that, or I want to be like, uh, now I can't even think of names, Abraham. I want to be, uh, I want to be like this individual. Uh, but we've got to remember there, it's persistent hope. That's what faith is. It's a persistent hope in God's promises and God's faithfulness, um, because those are the characteristics that are being celebrated. Uh, and so as you read chapter 11 this week, have that lens with you and don't get caught up so much in the story, but look to see how their faithfulness and God's faithfulness really cha- changes the course of their lives. Yeah, so. I think that was great. Uh, moving on past Hebrews, we're also starting the book of James this week. And so just to give it a quick introduction, um, I think it's really fitting actually that we're starting James the same week as we're starting Proverbs uh, because yes. James is oftentimes referred to as uh, the wisdom literature of the New Testament. Um, so it is a letter written by James, uh, and James being the brother, most likely the brother of Jesus. Um, it could have been uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, which was another one of the uh, apostles. Sons of Thunder. But, yeah. No, not the son of Thunder. Uh, oh, Alphaeus. No, that's Zebedee. Yeah, not Zebedee. Yeah. Zebedee was sons of Thunder. Um, but, but most likely Don't it's rebuke me. James, the brother of uh, Jesus, or half-brother, yes. I guess, because Joseph wasn't Jesus' father. Um, anyway, so James and Jude uh, – are the two brothers of Christ who end up writing books of the Bible. This one is interesting because it's actually, it probably, or at least very likely is the earliest book that we have of the New Testament. I think Thessalonians is the other one that's very early on. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's most likely written around AD 40 to 42, which would have been less than 10 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. So this is incredibly early. Um, This would be like writing about something that took place in 2011. Or something like yep. that. So, uh, very, very early on, especially in the context of ancient literature, uh, what we know about James is that he he actually does not uh, believe that Jesus is God until after the resurrection. Which is a there's a um, a good proof, I guess I should say. And when I say proof, I don't mean like definitive, but I mean like a good evidence. Uh, that Jesus is who he says he is, is that his brothers do not believe that he is who he says he is. And then all of a sudden something changes where all of his brothers uh, become church church leaders Mm -hmm. and are all killed for their faith. And so um, I would say that that thing that happened is most likely the resurrection. And so this goes down. uh, James becomes a leader 
in the church of Jerusalem, or I should say he becomes the leader of the, the basically yep. the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Um, and we know he's well-respected very early on because when uh, Paul begins to minister to Gentiles, the church does this thing where they, they, call a, they call a council together to decide whether or not the Holy Spirit's allowed to do what the Holy Spirit's doing uh, and save Gentiles. And uh, James is chosen to... Uh, to oversee that council. And that was a little bit glib because they're basically, they're trying to figure out like, well, what does this mean? Like, are we asking the Gentiles who become Christians to also become Jews? There's a lot of those issues that are at play there. And so that's what the, uh, that's what the council is talking about. Uh, And the reason that this book is called the wisdom literature of the new Testament is you'll actually notice that um, there's a few sections of James that actually read a lot like Proverbs. So they're really short little sentences um, that just convey uh, a lot of wisdom, particularly there's a there's a good section about the tongue, and what he means by tongue is like how uh, our words really just can change the trajectory of our life. He compares the tongue to the rudder of a ship and all these different things. Um, and when you're reading through it again, James is probably a pretty easy read as far as that goes. And then finally, I would say uh, when you're reading through the book of James, one of the big contrasts that he pulls is that. Um, Faith without works is dead, I guess, is one of the the main things from James. And what it means is not that our works save us, because we know from from the gospel, from from what Jesus has said, that it's our faith in him that saves us. Um, But really what he's saying is that if you have that kind of faith, you can't help but to also have works, because that faith motivates works. And so if you're saying that um, well, no, I'm a Christian. I believe Christ is saving you, but you're not talking to anyone about your faith, or there's no marked difference about you, or you're not um, actively becoming more and more like Christ as time goes on. Um, then basically, it's saying, you know, it's a red flag where not necessarily that other people need to look at you and kind of judge, but I think you need to look at yourself and say, like, well, am I am I really putting all of my faith in Jesus when I don't really have um, anything to to show for it? And the, the example that's used is fruit. Um, essentially, yeah. uh, if an apple tree doesn't produce any apples, well, it's, I mean, what good is it? It's just a tree then. It's not actually doing what it's made to do in the same way. If we as Christians do not produce uh, Christian fruit, then, well, we're not doing what we're actually supposed to be doing. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that idea of fruitfulness is so key. Um, and I mean, you say, you hear, I say it all the time as a pastor or a Christian leader, we talk about how's your fruit. So um, moving on to the last highlight that we want to kind of take today uh, is out of the book of Luke, uh, where we'll be reading, uh, starting in chapter 7. Uh, and I just want to, again, first, I didn't plan this, but just the idea of faith, I think it was, it's such an incredible statement that Jesus makes in chapter 7, verse 9. He says this, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And what he's referring to is the story of a centurion who is a, of the, of a, he's a Gentile. He's not of the Jewish people. He's not uh, included in the conversation just yet. And he comes to Jesus who and has a servant who's sick, and he knows that Jesus is a healer, and he just simply says, Jesus, will you heal my servant? I'm not worthy enough for you to come to my house. Uh, I understand the concept of authority. If I tell someone to go do something, they go and do it because of who I am and the position I carry. Uh, and, and so I don't need you to come to my house. I don't, I don't need to. I'm just asking you based upon who you are. And, and Jesus' response is that verse 9, he's not seen any faith in all of Israel such as this. And it's such a, a, a incredible picture because I remember hearing it and reading all the time, and it creates a, almost a stirring of like, man, what what faith is he talking about? And I think it really just comes down to the simple: the centurion knew 
who Jesus was, knew what Jesus was capable of, and he didn't need to try and convince Jesus to do something he was well within his means and ability to do. He just simply asked. And there's this humility and understanding the concept of authority that the centurion walked through. We find at the end of this story that the centurion traveled home with his his companions and found that his servant was well. And this conversation of faith, I think, is so powerful and so necessary because it's not, again, go back to faith without works is dead, but faith is not defined by what we do. It actually, we do what we do because of the faith we have and understanding the, hum- the, the authority that Jesus has over our lives. That's the way, why we do what we do. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that'll uh, wrap it up for this week of uh, Let's Read the Bible. Just a quick reminder that we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only podcast of the Grove Church. You can find a lot of our other resources and episodes at grove.church. Um, and also do us a favor, leave us a review on whatever, uh, whatever app you're using to listen. It helps get uh, the podcast out there to more and more people who grow this community of people who are reading the Bible together. So with that being said, uh, See you next week. Yeah, thanks for listening.